You're listening to the Rua Space Podcast. Hello, friends. Welcome to a new episode of the Rua Space Podcast. I am Phil, and I'm really glad that you've joined us today as we look to make space for the Spirit. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Cindy Parker for a really fun episode. Cindy brings a really unique perspective to Scripture and to the Rua Space Podcast, as she's been a professor in both the United States and Israel. So we dive into the importance of place and geography. She shares some really fun insights, some really unique perspectives that can help us both understand scripture and our own lives better. We especially look at this phrase from the Gospels where it says that Jesus and his disciples cross over to the other side. Something you may never have paid attention to before, but when you start to understand the political nature of what was happening where they were and the geography of the place and just what that phrase meant, it opens up all kinds of cool doors for both better understanding scripture and what it means to follow Jesus and make space for the spirit today. So we are really blessed and honored that that Cindy took some time to come on the podcast. She has a really cool project that she's just started, uh, a new business that we discussed toward the end of the episode that is definitely worth your time checking out. So thanks again for joining us. We hope that you enjoy this really great interview episode with Dr. Cindy Parker. Well, hi, Cindy. Thank you so much for coming on. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm so excited. It's been about two years since we last talked on a podcast, and so it's time. I know. It's great. And <laughs> I'm just excited to be um, introduced to you, to your audience, and discussing issues related to place. Well, can you tell them a little bit? Well, this is Cindy Parker, and uh, she was my professor, what, nine years ago? No like 10 or 11 years ago in Israel. Yeah, it, it, unbelievable, right? <laughs> so, so now you're all grown up and have a podcast. Yeah, and two <laughs> kids and it's crazy. Um, so can you start, just tell people a little bit about what you do, what you've been up to the last few years, and then uh, a short introduction to what you're doing now, and we'll really kind of get into that at the end. Okay, so I'm Cindy Parker. I've spent a lot of time in Israel um, the time that I've spent in Israel has dramatically changed how I view theology and shaped my own theology. Um, after living in Israel, I went and earned a PhD, and then I've been teaching at a seminary for the last few years. Um, I tend to focus on Hebrew Bible, Old Testament, um, and I'm always bringing in the context behind scripture to my students. I make them look at pictures and maps and everything. Um, so that part of the adventure has just concluded. So the last teaching job I had just ended. And so now I am starting my own business and trying to reimagine how education is done, um, especially taking seminary level education, but repackaging it for people who are professionals in other fields, um, trying to get information out to the masses. It's so exciting. And, and it centers on the importance of place, right? One thing I will never forget and is that geography is a character in the Bible, right? So 
Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that is that was one of the things I learned in Israel. And I am always trying to pass on to people is place this geography place how people are interacting with the geography around them with the memory that's held by place. It becomes a really vibrant influential character in the biblical text, and it is one that we as modern readers tend to ignore. And so the more we open our eyes and see it as this fascinating character, uh, when we learn to listen to it, it tells us all kinds of secrets that are behind the actual text that we're reading. And making some of those discoveries, I find so exciting and just so it adds this like vibrant color to the text. Well, we're kind of dislocated from our place, especially in America. You know, not everyone listening, you know, some of my friends from Africa might be like, what's it mean to be disconnected from my place? But, you know, especially in the West, we we don't think of our place often as having a story. And so it's like we don't then look for it in the text because we think, well, that, you know, that doesn't matter. But the Bible has more information about geography than many other religious texts. That's right. Yeah, every page of our Bible, no matter which version you're reading, every page has geographical information in it. It was uh, people people in ancient times um, or people even in modern times who are in the developing world are so connected to the place in which they live, to the soil, to the temper- temperament of the soil and to the weather. And we, the more we live in a technology-driven world, which is not bad, it just means that in this technological world, we are ignoring a certain type of data that is around us. And it's usually the geography, the place in which we live. So when I stand in front of churches or classrooms and I ask people if it is uphill or downhill to their nearest grocery store, most people have no idea yeah. because they go in their car. So unless you're walking to the store, you don't really, you're just not that in tune to the shape of the ground, uh, which is actually influencing the way that we live. Well, yeah, I love that. I mean, that's that that sort of speaks to the incarnation for me of God just not making pronouncements from heaven about, you know, hey, do this, don't do that, here's the truth. But it's always happening in a place with a people and it's shaped by where they are and their experience, the weather patterns. And it's it, to me, it makes it even more real because it mattered where it was, who it was. Absolutely. I completely agree. And Phil, you're sounding very much like Deuteronomy, which is my favorite book. <laughs> I think everything goes back to Deuteronomy. And uh, Deuteronomy d- says that quite a bit. There's a, a locatedness, a specificness of where God's people were to live and interact with a place in a particular way. You know, so there's a lot about the Bible that has to do with not just how humans interact with God, but how humans interact with the place around them and with the other humans who are in the place with them. So it's a lot more, um, I don't know, it, it has a much fuller 
context to it that I think is really beautiful. Yeah, well, and that's where we discover God. That's where we, when we make that space. And so as, as we're talking about that, you know, one of the stories that I was hoping we could talk about, and I was reading your article in this book, The Lexham Geographic Commentary on the Gospels, which I'll link in the show notes because everybody should go buy it. But you have an article in here about crossing over to the other side. And I think that this has significant implications for making space for the spirit in our life, making space for others. But as I read it, I was just hit by, oh my goodness, there's these few, these three Greek words you talk about, and it just explodes with meaning when you understand the geography. So would you mind just kind of diving in a little bit to um, that story of when Jesus is constantly crossing over the political situation, the geographical? I'll just kind of let you go for a few minutes, if that's all right. You know, this is my sweet spot. I love talking about this stuff, so I'll try to keep it short. And then, <laughs> you know, I, I just want to keep talking about this all the time. But That's good. They want to hear from you, not me. Okay. Well, so um, this phrase, crossing to the other side, um, seems like a throwaway phrase, right? It doesn't seem important. Those are simple words. They don't seem to have a whole lot of deep meaning behind them. Um, However, when you connect it to the place in which this narrative, these stories are happening, it ends up being quite significant. So uh, this is related to the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus spends a lot of his ministry time. Um, So he moves his place, his hometown from Nazareth, where he grew up, to Capernaum on the north end of the sea. So he spends a lot of his time just dealing with people, interacting with people who live around the Sea of Galilee. So the Sea of Galilee, however, even though it's a small body of water, um, it's about 13 miles from north to south at the longest point and about seven miles east to west at the widest point. Um, So it's really small. You can stand on the edge of the sea and look all the way around the edge. However, given the political context during the time of Jesus, it was a very complicated area. So right along the shoreline, there were three different political units that shared the shoreline of the sea. So there was the political region of Galilee, uh, which was ruled by one of Herod the Great's son, Herod Antipas. There was the Decapolis over on the southeastern side of the sea um, that was ruled by a whole series of Roman governors. And then up in the very you know, very small portion of the shoreline in the northeastern corner uh, was another one of Herod the Great's son, Herod Philip. He ruled over an area of Golanitis. So we have a small sea divided, or at least there's three political units that all come down and touch the shoreline of the sea. And each of these political units has a very different way of developing culture within it. So in Galilee, it was very Jewish-minded, lots of small Jewish communities. In Decapolis, it was very Hellenistic-minded, huge, massive Roman cities. Golanitis had small Jewish communities, large zealot, Jewish zealot communities, and then gigantic Roman cities. So it was this whole mixture. So it's fascinating to stand along the edge of the Sea of Galilee to figure out where those political units 
change, like how they all meet up with each other along the shore. Um, and then to read these gospel narratives. And then suddenly when you start reading things like Jesus and the disciples get into a boat and cross to the other side, it starts to have a different nuance to it. So the gospel writers, when they're talking and they use the phrase cross to the other side, what they mean is Jesus and the disciples get into a boat and they move from one political unit into another unit. So it has nothing to do with distance. They don't have to go north to south or east to west. It means they can be in a really in a small Jewish town like Capernaum and go a very short distance, like not even a mile away, cross into the political area of Golanitis, and that would account for crossing to the other side. So sometimes the gospel narratives don't give us the specific name where Jesus and the disciples end up. All they say is they cross to the other side. So we know they've moved to a different political unit, but then if we are careful and we pay attention to the text, we realize that Jesus and the disciples are interacting with people with a different cultural context. And they change the way that they speak and they act and the types of things that they do to be appropriate for the political context that they're in. That is so cool. And, and, and those units were split up by geography too, right? The three sort of sections were because of the Jordan River or the Rift Valley or right. different sort of physical things separated people and caused them to sort of, not necessarily that the geography caused, but helped lead to very different cultures forming, yet they're all coming together right at the sea. Yeah, and it's, it's geography and it's also because geography land can hold on to memory and stories of things that have happened there before. So take, for instance, the political unit of Galilee was the entire western side of the Sea of Galilee, from the Jordan River where it enters in the north to where the Jordan River exits in the south. But if you also look at the different types of stories that are held in place, they have a lot of the uh, villages around the sea on the western side have very strong Israelite narratives embedded in the soil. There's a deep and rich Israelite history that, and the memory of those events is, is rooted into the soil. And so by the time we get to the first century and now we have Jews and Jewish villages that are popping up all over, um, they are, they are, reminded of their past because of their geography. Opposed to over in Decapolis, there are very few, there are some, but very few Israelite narratives kind of rubbed into the dirt of the soil. And it is very easy for the residents of the Decapolis to ignore what came before them and to build their own way of thinking and way of life. Man, and that's that's then going to mean that how they think about the world, how they interact with one another. And I would imagine it would lead to some misunderstanding between right? these groups. <laughs> I would think so, too. And yet, so I think for sure there was misunderstanding between the groups. We have uh, textual evidence that 
there was conflict between Hellenistic audiences and then a more uh, Jewish, Israelite-minded audiences. Um, however, we also know that because these three political units are all joining together around the Sea of Galilee, there's a bit of familiarity that they have with each other because mm. they're neighbors. Yeah. So yeah. I like to ask people when we are in a boat on the Sea of Galilee talking about fishing and what that industry was like for the fishermen. If you were Peter, for instance, and you had been fishing all night and it is a rough and really hard way to make a living and you come ashore and you're sorting fish into kosher fish and non-kosher fish, what do you do with the non-kosher fish? Well, you certainly don't throw them back into the water, right? That yeah. That's all, of, it would be lost income. But people who live on the other side, they will eat anything. And so all you do is you just sell your fish to those people over there because they'll eat the fish that you won't eat. So there is an interaction and familiarity that is happening. Yeah, well, and... And it's so fascinating to read so many of these stories of when they go to the other side, because like you said, different, obviously different events happen, they interact differently. But one that stands out to me is in Mark 5, the story of the legion of demons in this man. And it's in Mark 5, 1. It's also in Matthew and Luke, right? It's kind of in all, all these right. gospels, but it says he uh, went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. And a man with an evil spirit came out. No one could bind him, not even with a chain. He had often been chained, but he tore them and broke them. And night and day among the tombs and hills, he would cry out and cut himself. Right. It's this is, frightening. It's frightening. This guy's been through a lot. Right. And we think of, I mean, that particular story is a significant story in terms of Talk about someone who is ostracized from his community, right? They know him as the one who breaks chains and screams and yells in the cave, right? I mean, it's yeah, such a, a, a challenging situation that he is in. And it's beautiful, too, because after Jesus heals him, um, you, you see him sitting at the feet of Jesus, like, please take me with you. I want to leave. And Jesus says, no, you need to stay. And that almost seems harsh because you know, we think, well, Jesus is asking him to stay in the community where he's been ostracized. Mm. Um, but then Jesus says, no, really, you have the right voice to go and speak to your people in the Decapolis. Go and tell them what has happened to you. Um, and it's, it's fun because in that story of Jesus casting the demons um, out of this man and into the pigs, the people are terrified of who Jesus is. And then Jesus leaves after telling the man to go tell everyone. And then a couple chapters later, Jesus comes back to the area of the Decapolis. And instead of being afraid of him, thousands of people go to meet him, which That's always nice. makes me wonder about how potent that man's testimony had to have been. Well, he shares that he, when they ask the demons, they say we're legion, which sort of hints again at sort of the Hellenistic Greek Absolutely. area, right? 
Because that Absolutely. word has to do with the Roman military. And there's pigs nearby, right? Which are things you know. Uh, I'm just stealing from your own notes here. But... Yeah, that's great. There's pigs on the hillside. And we could say, why are there pigs on the hillside? Because they were in the region of the Decapolis and they didn't observe kosher laws. Um, the fact that it is pigs and that the demons not only are named legion, which is fascinating, right? Because that's a segment of the Roman Empire, uh, Roman army. But we have found at the site of Hippus, which is one of the Decapolis cities that sat right on the shoreline of the sea, there was a coin that was found there. And on the coin is a depiction of a wild boar. Um, the boar, or a pig, right, was the symbol of the 10th Roman legion, which was stationed at Hippus. Oh. And so you have then Jesus goes into the Decapolis. We have all these signals throughout the narrative that are very Hellenistic Decapolis uh, symbols. And when Jesus can control the spiritual realm, even in the Hellenized place of the Decapolis, mm. right? And he's, destroying a whole herd of pigs <laughs> right under the noses of the 10th Roman legion, whose symbol is a pig. Uh, you know, it's, it's speaking volumes to the citizens who live in that area. Mind blown, right? I mean, that it's so cool. And, and, and I think it speaks to the importance of Jesus' message of, and, and again, as Paul really had to wrestle this out with the early churches, this isn't just for Galilee. Jesus right. wasn't just another local leader of a local God who was just going to bless these people, but is meant to sort of go to the ends of the earth. And so Jesus right. goes on purpose into these other regions and he, he doesn't seem afraid. I mean, I, I don't know that the disciples would have done some of these things on their own, right? Absolutely. So, yeah, it's... I mean, I, I, one of the things I really like about going up to Galilee, right around the Sea of Galilee, is because sometimes when we think of Jesus's life, um, death, resurrection, and then in the beginning of the book of Acts, telling the disciples to go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth, and you think, but as, as a rabbi, when did he ever teach his disciples to do that? Well, he taught them when he was around the sea. You know, mm -hmm. he the Sea of Galilee is a microcosm of the entire Roman Empire. And so he was teaching his disciples how to take the message of him being Messiah and teach that within a Jewish context or teach it within a zealot context or teach that within a Hellenized context. So he was teaching them about how that message was appropriate for everyone, like you said, and he's showing them how to do it. And he could do that just by hanging out around the Sea of Galilee, because so many different types of people were living there. And, and that story specifically, as you're saying that, it just makes me think of the complexity of that man in particular, not mm. just in a new political region, but someone who's been ostracized, someone who's violent, someone who's been through a lot of trauma. I mean, not necessarily the first person you'd think of as let's go love and serve that guy who everyone else won't even go near, 
but making, you know, in Rua space, talking about space for the spirit, space for God. I mean, this story to me just screams crossing over to those who are unlike you, who it's not safe. It's not what you're maybe used to. But then, as you said, it's almost like this guy became the missionary, you know, the 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 Paul of that area. But it but it was a it was not the obvious choice of people to interact with. Right. And from again, from his, we can't really speak from his point of view because we have no idea, really. But when I put myself in his shoes and. Uh, or sandals, you know, but try to imagine if you've been so hurt by your community when your own sickness or illness or issues and problems or junk or whatever has pushed you to the edges of society and maybe even rightly so, uh, but it takes a lot of courage to then try to reapproach that community to show them how God has transformed your life. He had to show up and he had to show them that he was changed and he was different. And I imagine that uh, welcoming him back into the community was probably a challenge for both the community and for him. Yeah, well, I'm imagining the power of the spirit must have been the only way he could do it because I would think on our own, that type of thing would be somewhat impossible. But yeah, the whole story just screams of God's work and just opening up to the other. And, and as I think about that, I think of the, the Sea of Galilee is in an area where this is still kind of the situation of all these cultures and people sort of coming together, right, of different Christian, Jewish, Muslim, uh, different cultures of people, people who speak different, who think different, and I mean, I, I even think in our own country now today uh, in in the U.S. of different political parties, Republican or Democrat. And as uh, diversity grows, there's a sense in which we all are sort of living in a similar situation of down the road is going to be or next door neighbor is going to be someone who, you know, you might be in the Jewish situation and they're in the Hellenized. They're going to look different, think different. Right. But Jesus was always crossing over to that other side. Right. Yeah, there's something important, I think, about learning that the message of Jesus, the life of Jesus and how he taught his disciples was not ever one that followed lifestyle, cultural and faith, hard lines and boundaries. Right. It, it It's one. It's a message for all people. And Um, I think we don't necessarily talk about that aspect of Jesus's ministry enough, Um, how revolutionary he really was for opening doors and interacting with people that other people were happier to say, oh, that's them over there. You know, those people with those beliefs that are wrong. And yet that's where Jesus went to engage and to help teach his own message of what it means for him to be a Messiah for the entire world. Even if it was dangerous. I mean, that guy was dangerous. Or or even I think then of Paul, who was constantly getting in trouble with local authorities and other people because he's like, I'm going to go to everybody and and share it. I I guess one question I'd ask you is in your own journey, 
because you talk with, I mean, I remember you would introduce us to shopkeepers from Palestine and shopkeepers from Israel and people who are Orthodox and people who weren't. What, how, what does it look like for you in, in that journey of all these years? I mean, with tour guides in Jordan, with I mean, you meet people every day who are yeah. probably who, all, over the, all over the place, right? Um, in terms of belief, language, everything. How do you make space for those others in your life of, of saying, I, I guess my question is of interacting with them in a way that Jesus did without saying, hey, you're just wrong. Think like me, be like me, but also not saying, well, I can't interact with you or have a relationship with you. I guess what does that space making look like for you, I guess, as you cross over in your own way to the other side all the time? Yeah. Yeah. And it is not always easy, right? It's there. I have been I've been hurt along this path. Uh, so, but at the same time, I think because when I create a hospitable space, so I will say one thing about being in Israel, Palestine, Jordan is interacting so much with the Arab community and within the Arab community, there is a deeply rooted idea of hospitality mm. and I have learned an awful lot about hospitality from a lot of my Arab friends and interactions. And I've tried to embrace that just even within personal interactions with people. So not just when I'm hosting people at my home, but even when I'm traveling, trying to create almost this hospitable space in which I try to let people know they're invited into this space to be who they are, not who I want them to be. Um, and I try to bring an attitude of curiosity into that as well. So who are they actually as humans and what are the things that matter a lot to them and concern them? And I think being willing to give them space to be who they are uh, and to validate who they are uh, is also a chance for me to say that they are seen as someone who bears the image of God. And, and I think I can speak hope into this kingdom that Jesus brought to the world. If it truly exists here on earth now and also in heaven, then there's a hope and a potential for how beautiful that kingdom can be. And I think we can, we can be hospitable and, show people um, how beautiful that kingdom really can be. So I think it's it's not always easy because there's so many barriers when you cross over. Language, ethnicity, gender can be a big problem as well. But I think being mindful of the hospitality aspect of it and actually seeing people for who they are instead of the problems that they're just presenting on the outside is huge. Well, and, and, and I love, as you were saying, that, that component of letting the person be who they are in hospitality. It's like we listen and learn to hear their story, which, again, yeah. if we're talking about the importance of place, what's interesting to me is around the Sea of Galilee, of course, someone who grew up in Galilee wouldn't have the same story as someone who grew up in Galnitis, right? Because their right. place has shaped them to be different. And it's, right. it's dangerous when we go in and think, well, you should already think like me or have the belief in this way, but there's something to, they've been shaped by their place and you probably would be like them if you were shaped in their place. And so learning to understand that story 
opens up that chance to hear well. But I think today we often think, well, you should be like me. Why don't you think this way? But our place is going to shape us differently. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we we actually know this intuitively because we um, we know that people in the north like wear different clothing, are engaged in different types of outdoor activities, and people who live in warm climates along the equator dress differently, eat differently. They, you know, we we understand that that is true for people modern day. We just forget to apply that to people in the Bible, to yeah. actually look at where they are from and give space and compassion for how that geography would have. Geography will make a community um, really conservative or more liberal and open-minded. That That's a geographical thing. Um, and so once we just start to develop eyes that can see and ears that can listen to the story that the character of geography can tell us, the more we just can engage better and see the Bible in a different way. Yeah. And, and yeah, see the Bible, see people, see life. It, it opens us up to, but we have to know our own story too, right? Like it kind of starts right. with that and then no other stories. So as we sort of um, come to uh, a close on time and such, I guess I would ask, what is a one or two things you would encourage people with or challenge people with in terms of growing in, in their engagement with the Bible, but also in terms of the crossing to the other side component, I guess something we, we could leave some people with. Mm. It could be three even, or four, whatever, whatever you need it to be. Oh, this is a good question. I Part of it for me is start by practicing being aware of place, your place around you, which and place can be the geography that's around you. So how is your neighborhood shaped, for instance? You know, are the roads going in circles or are they straight lines? Or is it green or is it bare and cement? Or, you know, do you share a front stoop with someone? Or do you have massive yards that are separating you from your neighbors, right? So just paying attention to your own geography and the way that you interact with it. And then try to figure out how that has influenced you a bit and then be gracious about understanding that people from a different context have been shaped differently by their geography. I had a great conversation with a friend of mine and I wish I had recorded it at the time. Uh, we were talking because I live in Philadelphia and I live close to downtown and she lives much further away in a much more open suburban area. And we spent about an hour just talking about how the shape of neighborhoods influenced how the people within those neighborhoods interacted with each other. And it was such an interesting exercise to do because it helps you understand people in those different contexts in a much different way. That was not three points. That was just me rambling. That's great. I love okay. that. <laughs> No, that's wonderful. And and how might you encourage people to see geography in the Bible? Like what might be the first step to say, as you're reading a story, new worlds open up when you think in this way or listen to the text in this way? Does that sort of make sense? It does. And it is definitely challenging. The absolute best is to go see it for yourself um, and do it on a tour 
that's not just a pilgrimage tour, but one that gets you out of the bus and walking the land because then the data gets stored inside your body, right? It becomes muscle memory, which is really valuable. So go to Israel, <laughs> Israel, Palestine, experience them both, right? I would, so I think that is the best way. Um, there are other ways you can do it though. There are huge databases now online. Uh, there's holylandphotos.com has free pictures of the land of the Bible and you can spend hours just looking through what the context was like. Um, Todd Bolin also has uh, bibleplaces.com, also a huge, massive, good resource for what uh, the place actually looks like. So with very little research on your own, you can actually just pull up pictures of what it looks like when the land is green or when it's dry. Um, there's also biblicalbackground.com puts out maps, a series of maps that you can then read scripture. This is what you would have done, Phil, when we did those big, those big seven maps. I still have and them. They're right there. I can see them. <laughs> I find them so valuable, even yeah. though I've been teaching in Israel for about 13 years. I still periodically go through and remark the maps because just marking things helps to place the people and narratives on land. And it's just good to remember. They grew up in real places um, where their geography was influencing who they were and what kind of decisions they made. Um, and the more we do activities like that, the more we're able to take these little theological bubbles, right? We tend to have a theological <laughs> bubble of David and Goliath. But if you can anchor it down onto the ground and realize there was a political context, there was a historical context, there's a very real geographical danger to where they are, right? All of those things just make us understand the faith of David a little bit more. I love that. And I love uh, just a total side note here, but I'll never forget when we were talking about that story and how David went down to the river to gather the stones and how people today like to go and get the stones from that river but isn't it true that a truck comes in and don't trucks come in and dump new stones there so people can collect their rocks? Right. I mean, it's right. You have <laughs> hundreds and hundreds and thousands of visitors coming to the land and they all want five stones from the <laughs> so riverbed. Good. And so at some point you have to start supplying some of those for them. <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for sharing about... Uh, the importance of place both in the Bible and today and an invitation to cross over to the other side. Now, I want to spend a couple minutes before anyone goes, because this is key, that you are starting a new thing. And I went on yesterday, I started my own little uh, Patreon support because I want everything that comes out of narrative of place. But tell That's people a little bit about this, because you talked about going to Israel, no one better to go with than Cindy Parker. <laughs> nice. Thank you. Yes. Uh, right. So I am starting a company. It is called Narrative of Place. Um, so you can find me at narrativeofplace.com. Um, and I am trying to put lots of different things all together. I'm trying to take seminary education or take some of the contacts I have uh, through seminary, all the different professors who live around me. 
Um, and I'm going to start a podcast soon. So Yay. stay tuned. It's coming. Um, and it is called Context Matters. Uh, so for this idea that the, the context in which we live determines how we interact with the world around us. Um, and then also the context of the Bible matters. Uh, so context matters. We'll start maybe soon. Um, <laughs> and yes, I lead several different trips to Israel. So I do educational trips that are designed to introduce people to all the different regions of the Bible. We spend the majority of our time outside the bus. So hiking hills and standing on ancient sites and trying to understand the connections between places. Um, and then we read the biblical text on site where you can look up in front of you and actually watch these scenes take place in front of you. So uh, the trips that I have available are also on my website. And people can support you monthly and get access to special um I'm losing the word information or writing or other things, correct? Absolutely. So I'm also starting a Patreon account. So also access to it is available at Narrative of Place. Um, and for the Patreon supporters, you get all kinds of behind the scenes look at, you know, uh, what happens in the publishing world. So I have several articles I'm working on and a couple books I'm working on. And so what does that process look like for an author who's publishing? Um, at, and depending on what level people support me at, I'm actually giving them sneak peeks at you know, the early drafts of these things or signed copies of the book um, when it's published. Um, wow. And if there's enough, if I get enough Patreon supporters, then I will have the Patreon members uh, decide what kind of questions they would like to ask to my Israeli and Palestinian friends. And so the next time I'm in Israel, I'll conduct these interviews and then give that feedback back to the Patreon supporters. Awesome. Well, definitely go check out Narrative of Place. Throw over your support because it's totally worth it. Consider a trip. And uh, I will also put links to some of your books in the show notes. And so please go get those. It's worth it. It, it, it. I know that my time in Israel and studying with you was was life changing. So definitely go check that out. Support it. And thank you so much for coming on today. This was an honor to have you back again. It was my pleasure. And it's always good to see you, Phil. All right. Thanks again. Hey everyone, Phil here again. I hope that you enjoyed that discussion with Dr. Cindy Parker. We appreciate you joining us for this interview episode. Definitely go check out Narrative of Place. Everything that Cindy has written, I guarantee it'll be worth your time. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, we would love if you would leave us a review on iTunes podcast. It definitely helps this podcast reach more people, share this news about making space for the spirit. That's a blessing to us, and we definitely appreciate appreciate it. So brothers and sisters, enjoy the rest of your day and we'll see you in the next episode. Grace and peace be with you.